So this morning, as we begin Advent, we're taking a break in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we will be doing an Advent series in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Advent according to Matthew. So we begin in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Hear now the eternal living word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliod, and Eliod the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. So if someone asked you, who are you? How would you respond? Most likely you would answer with your name, first and last name. But if someone wanted to dig further to find out who you are, you may tell them your hobbies, your likes, your dislikes as part of your answer. You, you may tell them who you are by what you're passionate about. Or maybe you would tell them your occupation, your, your family status, the name of your spouse, the name of your children. What you probably want to do is give them a detailed genealogy. If you wanted to know 
someone to know who you are, you probably wouldn't answer with, here's my family tree. But if you were a first century Jew, you would start with your name and the name of your father or possibly the name of your town. Because for Jesus, his name would have been Jesus bar Joseph or Jesus of Nazareth. But if you wanted to get to know him better, you could find this out by his ancestry, his genealogy. Matthew's gospel seems to be written to a primary audience of Jewish Christians or Jewish readers. And we see this because the Old Testament permeates throughout his gospel. There's approximately 55 Old Testament quotes used in the gospel of Matthew. And there's about 65 used in the other three gospels combined. Plus, there are Old Testament allusions and echoes everywhere throughout his gospel. And he just assumes his readers understand these things. And so he begins his account of the life of Jesus with a genealogy. And this was important to Jews. The Hebrew scriptures list many such genealogies throughout the Old Testament. But Matthew doesn't only tell us the genealogy of Jesus to tell us who, is it, who he is and to tell us his ancestry, but he crafts this genealogy of Jesus to make a theological emphasis. He is telling us that Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And that will be our focus this morning as we unpack this theological emphasis in the, gospel, in the genealogy given by Matthew. And so specifically, from the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see three fulfillments found in Jesus, the coming of the Christ into the world. We see that Jesus fulfills the promises to Abraham, that Jesus fulfills the promises to David, and Jesus fulfills the hope for exiles. Matthew begins his whole gospel account, but with this detailed genealogy of Jesus. And he says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In this heading to the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew is announcing three things about Jesus. First, that he is the Christ. And the Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which is simply the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. Matthew here, by saying Jesus Christ, is announcing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, in the first century, there, there were many different expectations for what the Messiah was supposed to do and supposed to be. And some of these expectations were even conflicting with each other. But Matthew is going to reveal throughout this book what it means that Jesus is the Christ, what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew also announces that Jesus is a son of David and a son of Abraham, which means he's a descendant of each of these men. And these announcements aren't separated from the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, because being both a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham were necessary components to any claim to be the Messiah. Luke also includes a genealogy in his gospel, but he traces the lineage of Jesus back to Adam. He, Luke is establishing that Jesus is the second Adam coming to succeed where Adam failed. But Matthew begins with Abraham. And in case anyone might miss what he is trying to emphasize in the genealogy, he summarizes it in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew has specifically structured his genealogy so that from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations. Then from the Babylonian exile to Jesus Christ, 14 generations. And this was intentionally done. Matthew actually had to leave out several names to make this happen. And this was not uncommon in ancient genealogies. But Matthew's purpose is clearly to emphasize four points. Abraham, David, exile in Babylon, and the Christ, the Messiah. And by Jesus being the Christ, it means not only is he a descendant of both Abraham and David, but he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Matthew, by beginning his genealogy, specifically that Jesus fulfills the promises to Abraham, to David, and to the exiles. And so the first fulfillment of promises that we'll look at this morning is Jesus fulfilling the promises to Abraham. The story of Abraham is in the book of Genesis. It's contained between chapters 12 and to 25. It's a major section of the book of Genesis. And Abraham's name starts actually as Abram. And God eventually changes his name to Abraham. And Abraham is first mentioned actually in a genealogy right at the end of Genesis 11. And then right in the beginning of Genesis 12, and it seems to be out of nowhere, but it's actually God executing his sovereign plan. God chooses Abram out of paganism. He was a pagan. His family were pagans. And only after briefly mentioning his name as a descendant of Torah in a long genealogy coming from Noah, all of a sudden, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord, Yahweh himself, speaks directly to Abram with no immediate explanation as to why. But we know as God revealed more over time that it was for his sovereign purposes, for his redemptive purposes, for his own glory, that he chose Abraham and made these promises to him. And he commands Abram to go from his country, from his family, from his father's house, to a land that I will eventually show you. He doesn't even tell him where this land is. And then he makes three promises to Abram. He promises Abram land. He promises Abram that he will make him a great nation, make him into a great nation. And he promises Abram that he will bless all the families or all the peoples of the earth through him. And so the fullness of what God is promising is that a people will descend from Abram to fill a land. And that land, from that land, they will serve as a blessing to all the nations. Now, these promises have historical fulfillments that we read about in the Old Testament. There was a physical, concrete land. There was an actual people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, that were biological descendants of Abraham. 
And at least for some time, this nation lived in the promised land as a blessing to the nations around them. But these promises are really spiritual promises. And they find their fulfillment in the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Jewish reader would have already expected this about the Christ, the Messiah. That part of what he would come to do would fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham as a descendant of Abraham. Now they may have assumed it was only physical fulfillment, historical fulfillment, but they would have expected the Messiah to come to do this. And so Matthew starts his genealogy of Jesus with Abraham. And he's pointing out to his readers, to anyone who would read this gospel account, that the promises of Abraham, the promises that God will give Abram a people that will descend from him to fill a land, and from that land they will serve as blessings to all nations. These promises are spiritual promises that are ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. The physical, concrete, Old Testament fulfillments were just a shadow of the true spiritual fulfillment in Christ. They were like old negatives of photos that only gave you a darkened outline of the full picture, only to be developed into full, beautiful color photos. The physical fulfillments in the Old Testament, including the promises to Abraham, operate in the same way. They're simply to point us forward to the final fulfillment of these promises in Jesus Christ. And so the ultimate fulfillment, as Paul points out in Galatians chapter 3, is that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are spiritual descendants of Abraham. The great nation promised to Abraham are ultimately those who are adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are spiritually united to Jesus Christ by faith are grafted into the people of God, and they are blessed by God. And in the final fulfillment of these promises, those who have faith in Jesus Christ will dwell in the promised land, the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, which will be the dwelling place for the people of God where we will be with our God and he will be our God. And we will be a people of all nations. Through Jesus Christ who is a physical descendant of Abraham himself, people of all nations will receive the blessings promised to Abraham. The Gentiles are now brought into the people of God to the faith in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Then the next key figure in Matthew's genealogy may be the most prominent figure of all, David. Many scholars believe that Matthew used 14 generations three times to point to David as the pinnacle because in Hebrew, they assign a number to Hebrew consonants and they add them up. It's called gematria, but David's number is 14. And so the first thing about Jesus that Matthew mentions in the first verse after saying he's the Christ is that he is a son of David. Jesus is referred to as the son of David ten times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And this is crucial because all Jews were descendants of Abraham at that time. But being from the line of David was special. It indicated potentially being the Messiah. And so Jesus being a son of David is important for his role as Christ. 
And this is the second fulfillment we find here in Jesus, that he fulfills the promises that God made to David. The promises to David are are connected to the promises of Abraham. They both are administrations of the same covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, as Westminster Confession puts it, God freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And God reveals more and more about this covenant of grace fulfilled in Jesus Christ throughout the different covenants in the Old Testament. And it's finally fulfilled in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. But our focus this morning is specifically Abraham and David. In his promises to Abraham, God promises to graciously lavish his blessings upon his undeserving people. Now in David, God promises to establish a king of his people as a covenant mediator. And so based on the righteousness of the king as the mediator, the covenant mediator for his people, all the covenant blessings to his people will hang on this king. The people will be blessed if the king is righteous, and the people will be cursed if the king is unrighteous. And we see this unfolding through the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. God's people are either blessed or cursed through the king as the covenant mediator. And so we read the promises to David from First Chronicles 17 in our responsive reading. But these same events are recorded in Second Samuel 7, which adds a bit more. And so first we can note that the promises to Abraham are reiterated to David. God said to David, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. But then God adds new specific promises to David. He's revealing more about his covenant. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in his covenant of grace, God requires obedience throughout all of the covenants, even as he maintains his mercy. And we see that with Abraham. God required obedience from Abraham. He he started with commands. You have to go out from your land, go out from your family, go out from your father's house to a land I will eventually show you. But he had mercy on Abraham and his descendants as well. And we see this same balance of obedience and mercy with his covenant with David. God requires obedience, and failure to keep the law means God will bring judgment. But regardless of what kind of judgment will occur, the line of David will not be cast off. And this was significant for God's people because the king is the covenant mediator. And so when the king knows blessings, the people will know blessings. And we see God having mercy on his people 
because of his promises to David. When the king is chastised, the people will be chastised. And so with the covenant with David, God's covenant purposes are now channeled through one man, the king, who is God's son. So when that man sins, God will chastise him. But the chastisement will never derail God's purposes. His promises for the line of David will stay. And we see that in his covenant with David. God provides an earthly king. And this is to point us forward to the everlasting reign of the son of David. So just like Abraham in David, God prepares his people for the coming of Jesus. For the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. And Matthew establishes that Jesus is not only a son of David, but the son of David. Jesus is the king that will reign on the throne of David as the covenant mediator for God's people forever. And through his perfect righteousness, God's people can now be blessed forever. Jesus has come to fulfill these promises made to David. And now the third emphasis in Matthew's genealogy is interesting because it's not a person. It's an event or a time period. The deportation to Babylon. And so he includes this in the genealogy because he is making a point. So because of the sins of the kings of Israel, the covenant mediators, and the priests, and and, and all the people of Israel, God punished them by removing them from the land that he had promised them. He promised to Abraham. And he used the Assyrians to remove the northern kingdom of Israel from their land, and he used the Babylonians to deport the southern kingdom of Judah from their land. And this is known as the deportation to Babylon, or the Babylonian exile. And because the people of Israel had come to focus primarily on the physical, earthly fulfillments of God's promises, because they lost sight of the spiritual fulfillment, they believed that this deportation, this exile, meant that God was no longer their God, and they were no longer his people. The realities of Israel's special relationship with God seemed to have been revoked. And God's people were crying out to him during this time. Psalm 89 verse 39 says, You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. The people of God felt rejected by him. Lamentations 5.22 says, You have utterly rejected us. Now, many of the prophets wrote during this time of exile, and they spoke of God's judgment on his people. Some of them foretold of this punishment beforehand, but they also gave the promises of hope to God's people in exile. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, if you read through Jeremiah, the first 25 chapters are primarily concerned with God's judgment for his people. The Israelites had sinned and broken the covenant repeatedly, For generations, therefore, God's judgment was unavoidable. The horror and the certainty of God's judgment upon his people is apparent when you read through Jeremiah. But starting in chapter 26, Jeremiah turns his attention to a future hope. The hopeful promise of God's consolation on the other side of his judgment. And in Jeremiah 31, God promises a new covenant. And he's promising this to the same covenant-breaking people that Jeremiah spoke to in the first 25 chapters. And he's assuring God's people that in the new covenant, God is bestowing the fullness of all his covenant purposes. 
Jeremiah describes this new covenant as the climax, the full realization of everything that God has been doing throughout his redemptive history, even for a people who have been cast off into exile. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of that land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, of a hope to these people in exile. And in the new covenant, God is continuing and gloriously finishing all that he has been doing. And this is throughout the prophets. The same thing is in Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel begins with judgment. And just like Jeremiah, it turns to the hope of the new covenant. And to, in Jeremiah, or so Ezekiel, God says that he will give his people a new heart to replace their stone hearts, that he will put his spirit, the spirit of God, within them. And the spirit of God will cause you to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules, and then you will dwell in the land and you will be his people. God is saying in the new covenant that the promises of Abraham will be fulfilled because God will put his spirit in his people. And this will bring about the obedience in them so they can remain in the land. The Babylonian exile shows that God's people cannot be disobedient and remain in the land. But the promises in exile is that the future hope is that God will put his spirit in his people so they can remain obedient. That he will give us a new heart so we can remain in the land as his people. And in Ezekiel, it actually promises in chapter 37 that the king from the line of David will reign over this new covenant people. And these people over whom the son of David reigns will live in accordance to God's judgments and statutes and they will fulfill the holiness that is required of God's people. And all this glorious righteousness will radiate from a people who live in the promised land, fulfilling what God promised to Abraham and to David. The full weight of the glory of God dwelling with his people is promised and perfected in the new covenant. And this new covenant isn't entirely new. It's the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is our third fulfillment in Jesus in this passage. Jesus fulfills the hope for exiles. From the time that he began his earthly ministry, Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand because he was coming into the world to fulfill the kingdom of God, to fulfill all the promises of God. Jesus came to secure the new covenant by shedding his own blood. We proclaim this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus said this cup is the new covenant in his blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The hope for those in exile is the hope for God's people today. That Jesus Christ shed his own blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. That you can be righteous before God only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that he died shedding his blood to pay for your sins. And this is all the grace of God received by faith in Christ. It is the grace of God, the gift of God in Jesus Christ to his people. And so as you enter into this Christmas season... 
Then you enjoy all the great things about Christmas that we enjoy. The hymns, the movies, the food, the gifts, the time with our family. Remember all that God has done in the coming of the Savior. Remember all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All these promises began with his birth in a major. And the celebration of the first advent, as we are doing, reminds us of the second advent. As we celebrate the first coming of Christ, we can hold on to the certainty of future hope in the return of Christ. The return of Jesus Christ, our King. And upon his return, Jesus will finalize what he has begun. The fullness of the glory of the new covenant will be fully realized and you will be with God in the land that he has promised, all the while being perfectly holy, sinless, and blessed, enjoying the presence of God in Christ for the rest of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together this morning to worship you as your people in your name, knowing that Our only hope in life and in death is your son, Jesus Christ. That all of your promises you will fulfill. Any hope that we have is not a wishful thinking, but a guaranteed promise for the future. That we hold on with certainty, knowing that Jesus will return and finalize all your promises. That we will be in perfect glory, perfect blessedness, blessedness with you in holy perfection for the rest of eternity, enjoying you and your presence. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our glorious King. Amen.